Welcome back to Witch Church. It's Mal. Hey, friends. You know, recently I read a really good book, and it's called The Heart Word How I Lost It All and Found Myself. And it's actually written by a witch church parishioner. <laughs> Hopefully, you know I'm saying that with、uh, facetiously, but it's written by a witch church goer. My friend Lauren Hava Rose. And I knew when Lauren asked me to be one of the preliminary readers of the book, I was like, I already know this is going to be good. But then I just ripped through the book. It was one of those memoirs that you can't put down. And I thought, well, A, we have to have Lauren on the podcast. I mean, we gotta. And B, Because Lauren is a psychotherapist, she has so much experience with inner child healing and the type of therapy that I most resonate with, which is IFS or internal family systems. And her book really struck me as this journey of inner child healing. So when I was sitting down with Lauren, talking a little bit about what our podcast could be together, We ended on this topic of why we're so afraid sometimes of our inner child. And Lauren's own memoir explores these very topics. So I just think this episode, it's honestly top five episodes,、uh, interviews I'm most proud of. I really think it's going to make a deep, lasting effect on. Some people who might be listening. So, let me tell you a little bit more about Lauren before we head into the interview. Lauren Hava Rose is a writer, poet, and psychotherapist with over a decade of experience in the field of trauma informed care. Her writing has been featured in the Elephant Journal, Body Politic, and Medium. Lauren is the author of The Heart Word How I Lost It All and Found Myself. In addition, her work as a writer, Laura, Lauren is the founder and lead creative at Jagged Path, where she provides therapeutic consultation to fellow writers. Lauren also works directly with survivors of trauma in her clinical practice, LCR Therapy. You're going to love this interview. Give a fellow witch churchgoer some support. Um, I'll link all of Lauren's links below to her book and all of her Jagged Path writing consultations. And enjoy all the wisdom of Lauren. I'm so excited to finally have a chat with you. And、uh, as you know, I recently dug into your memoir, which is called The Heart Word. How I lost it all and found myself, and immediately obsessed because I feel like the the underlying theme of your memoir is、uh, inner child awareness and inner child work. And that's like my favorite thing ever. And it's the type of healing, or I should say, healing through the inner child lens is ultimately. Maybe even the only thing that's ever made a difference for me and like my life. And I just think, see you nodding your head, you're kind of the same way. We have that kind of similarity. And I know you're a therapist. And I just kind of wanted to ask you, like, 
a little bit about not only your spiritual journey, but your journey to becoming a therapist, because I know so many therapists become therapists because we had a lot of practice, you know, as, as kids. So yeah, just talk, maybe give us a little, uh, yeah, a little introduction to your story in, in that way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. First of all, I'm such a fan of you and of Witch Church. And so it's just really an honor to be here talking to you. I'm honored that you read my book. You know, it just feels, it feels really great to be sitting down with you. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think that I came to therapy probably like a lot of us do, right? It's sort of like we go through a lot of things and that, you know, we maybe become who we didn't have. And I think that that was really why I really became a therapist was I think that there were like, I, I saw myself as a healer for a long time. You know, I think I was kind of the friend that everybody turned to I and I loved it, right? I wanted to be in that role. And I think I also was so, like someone who was sort of a seer. I saw through things. Um, I saw through patterns. I saw through, you know, complexes. I saw through people's pain to maybe what was underneath it. And I really, you know, I wanted to just sort of make my way through that and help as many people as I could because I really do think that it's a gift for those of us that have that kind of empathic ability, that ability to understand at a deeper level. Um, and I love this work. Um, I've been in practice since 2009 post-grad and it doesn't feel like a job, honestly. It feels just like, I love my clients. I use that word when I think about them. You know, I feel very called to healing work in general. Totally. And I feel like many therapists, and I'm not a therapist, so I don't have this complete experience, but a lot of my clients are therapists. A lot of the witch church goers are therapists. And, you know, something that I hear across the board is like, we have that background of empathic kid who's tapping into a lot of the family wounds and then they end up going to therapy school or going on the healer's path. And you had this moment in your book where like you started doing the, the, your own therapy once you got to grad school. And it was sort of like the, oh shit, like, you know, <laughs> tell us a little bit about like that moment. If you can think back to maybe that that part of your life where you realized the maybe pursuit of ther pursuit of being a therapist also was going to require you to face a lot within yourself. Yeah, you know, I think it's a really interesting part of the book too where, you know, I'm living everywhere but my hometown and I'm just trying everything possible to escape what I've been through but it's like knocking on my door, right? Like late at night, I'm waking up with flashbacks. Like my relationships are just kind of a mess. Let's just be honest, you know, like, and I'm not, I'm not faking it as well as I think I am. And so I decide that I need to go back to where I'm from, which is the suburbs of Chicago. 
Um, and I was living in DC when I realized this and I just applied to the University of Chicago social work program. And I decided like, if I get in, it's kind of, it's kind of feels like a long shot. I don't really know. <laughs> um, and I got in with a scholarship and that's when I was like, I think the universe needs me to go back. And it, I think the first year of that program, it really was a deep dive into me realizing the mirror of like, I'm not going to be able to sit with people like I want to, if I can't sit with myself. And I've been running from that for like a decade at this point, right? So I start to go to my own therapy. And at first that's really tough because I'm realizing so many things that, you know, you can't unsee once, once that blindfold starts to come off. And, you know, I think I sit with so many clients that are in that place too. And so I, I really understand that. And I do think that part of why I wanted to write a memoir as a therapist is to really be able to say, I've been there and I understand, you know, I'm walking the walk too. Like I know what it takes to save my life and that, that, but that process was really rough at the beginning, you know, like lots of ugly crying on the floor after therapy sessions of my own. Lots of just, you know, really hard truths about my family and the way I grew up and things that I really didn't want to face. But ultimately, it's there whether you're calling it out or not. And I think I realized that trying to hide from it wasn't working. Oh, absolutely. That You know, it makes so much sense that um, I think every spiritual journey, and I say that in quotes, but like the beginning of every spiritual journey is sort of that rough truth that gets blinded, you're blinded by like this truth of, oh, wait, my parents weren't perfect. Or, oh, wait, something that happened in my childhood is still affecting me now. Or, you know, oh, wait, like that was actually a massive deal to my five-year-old self. And I've kind of been gaslighting my five-year-old self as a 30-year-old telling that part, it's not a big deal, get over it. You know, we do this subconsciously. So when we're actually forced to sit in that place with um, our parts and and really acknowledge all of them, I think it can be really earth shattering. Some of these truths, it challenges our very identity to, to our cores. Yeah. And it's interesting hearing you start to use the parts language, which I love, you know, and I just am thinking about my younger self in school, you know, back in Chicago for the first time in a really long time. And man, I could have really used that parts language. <laughs> I didn't have it for a while, you know, and, but I think that now I see what was going on from an IFS lens, from a parts lens, when I was, you know, in my first year back, just really struggling in lots of ways. And I think there were a lot of younger parts that were suddenly home again, you know, and just like kicked up like particles in a snow globe, you know? Oh my God. I re yeah, I relate to that so hard. Um, and I'm wondering, this, this feels like a good segue because part of the reason why um, 
I wanted you here today, besides your wonderful energy, is I wanted really to have a therapist teach us about IFS, which is a type of therapy that I'm constantly kind of raving about. It's the type of therapy that made the most difference for me as a highly sensitive, neuro, spicy, queer. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been really life-changing for me. And I know from your book with this parts terminology, which is coming from the IFS sort of a paradigm that you also are a fan of IFS, but maybe we could kind of introduce this topic to the listeners and maybe you could give us like a little IFS 101 since it is the type of therapy that you both or that you practice and in your own therapy and with your clients, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm always really excited to break this down for folks because I think, you know, there's a lot on the internet, there's a lot of memes about it, but I think it's really helpful to just kind of hear the theory talked about a little bit so that if anyone really is looking for something like this, they know how to look for a therapist that practices from this perspective. Um, so one of the things I love about using parts language is that it really takes into account things like complex trauma and developmental trauma. And for me as a therapist and as a client of parts work, I think it's one of the best modalities for developmental trauma that there is. Because, you know, I think a regular kind of PTSD diagnosis fits more acute traumas that we go through. Um, but for those of us that grew up in a way where, where I, I like to say that complex trauma, sort of like trauma becomes a way of life. You can't separate the trauma from your life because it's, they're just so intertwined. It it's all the time it's omnipresent, you know? And so those of us with, you know, marginalized identities, those of us that grew up in households that were not safe those of us that grew up in, you know, lower income communities, those of us that had immigrant families are all probably exposed to levels of developmental trauma and complex trauma. And so, you know, things like EMDR are great when there's an acute trauma, but when there's something that's kind of hard to separate from your whole identity or from your whole life, I think parts work can really come in. Um, and what it really is, is, you know, it's called internal family systems, which sometimes feels a little misleading, I think, to folks, um, because it's not really about your family. It's, you know, Richard Schwartz is the creator of IFS, and he's referring to how we all have an internal family of parts. <laughs> Um, and because at first when I saw that with all of the stuff in my actual family, I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but then I realized that maybe wasn't what it was and it seems a little less scary. So for anyone listening, that's what it's about. Um, and there's different kinds of parts and what, you know, it's works really well with creatives too, because you end up giving parts a name, an identity, you can give them a whole, a whole archetype. Um, I've had clients make artwork for their parts. We've done meditations for their parts. It's really cool. So 
the the different kinds of parts are exiles and managers and then within the manager category there's a firefighter part and those are kind of like the main ones that we tend to work with the most um the exile parts are the ones holding the trauma story they are stuck at the age the time the location of the trauma um and so I know that's hard with what I just said about developmental trauma being all the time, but there are usually sort of like instances where you can find an exile, like within a family that is really dysfunctional. Maybe there's an exile hanging out where somebody's mother said something really harsh one day, you know, so like that's an example of like there might be an exile there. And I like to think about them like really kind of stuck like replaying a movie almost at the scene of how it happened. Um, but because, you know, those parts are really vulnerable, those parts are really scared, they're holding the root of what happened, there's managing parts that are usually protecting them. And I like to think of managers as like the guards of an exile. So, you know, we experience something, it goes into an exile place, and suddenly there's a managing part that sort of comes over like a guard and says, you can't cross, I'm protecting this exile from further harm. Um, and managers can look all kinds of ways. I mean, usually they're really kind of like cognitive, they can like, they can feel like they're kind of like in a boardroom, like, no, that's not where you're going, you know. Sometimes they have like, you know, this quality that feels a little bit more rational while the exiles are stuck in the feeling of it all. Um, and one of the types of managers is a firefighter. And so a firefighter is unique from other kinds of managers because a firefighting part is just trying to get you away from the exile by any means necessary. And so firefighter parts are usually where like where other modalities would describe our coping mechanisms so maybe there's a firefighter part that you know likes to drink because it's just too scary to go into that place maybe there's a firefighter part that you know gets really angry when somebody gets too close to it right like the it's like uh, if you imagine any firefighter their goal is just to put out the fire they don't care what gets damaged in those in the process they don't care about the furniture they don't care about anything it's get out of the house and put out the fire and like you know you're walking by you see a firefighter you try to talk to them and they're like lady no i'm doing this right and that's how firefighter parts can be all they care about is extinguishing that and that's usually what happens when there's a really wounded exile so that's sort of like the basis of what it looks like. Wow. Yeah, it's it's so powerful to think that these parts on some level exist in all of us. Um, even if someone thinks they, you know, had a perfect childhood or whatever, I think still on some level, those parts exist, even ancestrally. Because if our parents, let's say, have a really deep exiled part, I think then we sort of inherit that on a psychological level. I think when we say 
ment mental illness runs in the family or depression runs in the family. For me, the translation is uh, there's an exiled part that runs in the family, you know, um, or gets passed down through the generations until someone maybe is, I don't want to say brave enough to probe at it, but maybe becomes aware enough to probe at those parts. Um, and I'm interested to hear your perspective on what I'm about to say, uh, Lauren, but as far as Richard Swartz being like the 1990s therapist who kind of quote unquote came up with the IFS system, it's also my feeling that the witches and the shamans and the ancient people always knew that there were many different parts of our psychology. Um, maybe Richard Swartz was like the white guy who put it into writing, right? But um, I I'm wondering your take on that. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm over here like snap, snap, snaps to that. Um, absolutely. And I think that that's, I mean, that's how a lot of therapy works, right? It's sort of like there will be someone, usually a white person that comes up with something that probably comes from ancient knowing and is repurposed, which I think is also why so many of us are wanting to decolonize therapy in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I absolutely agree with you that you know, I think, and I, I realized this because the journey of my book is such that I, you know, there's a, a section of my book where I'm going through a soul retrieval and a soul retrieval looks just like IFS, but is a much more ancient practice is rooted in shamanism. And, but the result is so similar. And so, you know, in a soul retrieval, the idea is that there are parts of you that split off during trauma, like parts of your soul and the soul retrieval practice is to bring them back and help you integrate that. And it's very similar to what we're talking about in parts work. Oh, absolutely. Um, and one of like the, uh, the best, not the, I don't know if it's best because it was very painful, but one of the um, more painful yet positive experiences I had with IFS was assigning, like you said, the archetypal role to some of my parts. And one of my parts I'll share, I call kind of like a Hermione Granger part, <laughs> like in the sense that uh, when I was uh, when I was growing up, I was the good kid. I was the one who wasn't couldn't get into trouble. Um, I had a sibling who was extremely distressed and in disarray from a young age. And I had this sense, if I had even one problem, my parents were going to lose it. Like they, I knew they could only handle so much. They were not handling my sibling well, or in a way that made me feel safe. So thus, I think a part got created, which I call the Hermione Granger which is sort of like the perfect student. And I also knew that I could get the validation that I was lacking from my parents, from my teachers, right? So my teachers kind of became these like sub parents <laughs> that I could get like a thumbs up or even love from. And, you know, my teachers to this day, um, you know, have said profoundly nicer things about me than, 
my mother would ever say about me, you know, so like, you know, there's, there's something there with uh, the recognition of that part for me, it's very healing. Now that I am a business owner, um, I, I talk to that Hermione Granger part all the time. I'm like, girl, are you trying to be perfect right now? Are you trying to get an A plus? Um, are you trying to get outward validation from, someone else you know like all of that stuff actually now that I'm speaking about it I've realized I've worked with this part so much it does not affect me as deeply as it did like let's say my whole life up until 24 (laughs) Um, but now that I'm 28 that's the thing recognizing these parts it helps kind of free us from their management Um, and I share that because I would love to know if you feel comfortable, do you have a personal story about maybe a recognition of a certain archetypal part as an example for the listeners as they maybe contemplate their own parts and what kind of archetypes they could subscribe to them? Yeah. And first of all, I love that you have a Hermione Granger part. (laughs) Love that. Totally can see that for you. And, and I think what you are describing of like how much you integrated her, how much you're talking to her is awesome because I think sometimes we lose sight of that in parts work. We identify them and then they're just like, we don't work with them, but they're here. They're living and breathing inside of us. And so it's like, once we know who they are, we want to be checking in on them, especially around things that might be triggering for them or hard for them. Um, so I think that's awesome that that's something that you're so accustomed to doing. Um, and yeah, I definitely have a part I would love to share, um, which actually is a part that I wrote about in my book. Um, and so in the, in my first kind of installment of being a client of parts work, which was actually be a little bit before I got trained in it myself, I think I, I took it for a test drive, <laughs> which I always recommend, you know. And then I thought, yeah, this is this is something I want to be able to do also in my work. Um, but my therapist that was trained in parts work helped me identify this part called the that we called the wounded warrior, um, which has no connotation to the Veterans Association because um, there's an organization called that, which is awesome. Um, but my wounded warrior, like I, I'll describe like the full archetype and this is an exile. Um, so the wounded warrior is like a burnt out version of the tin man, like in a field in like full rusted out gear, swinging a sword at nothing. <laughs> um, and so this is a perfect example of developmental trauma and how an exile can exist, right? Because this is like this wounded warrior is exhausted right like he doesn't want to be there doing this there's no way right but there's always another fight right there's always there was always something I had to fight against and it was so constant and it was so omnipresent that this part of me developed that just would show up at a family function sword out like bring it (laughs) and I am also an Aries sun and Aries moon so I don't think it's an accident that I have a part that looks like a warrior somewhere um 
And that's not the only warrior part I have, but that is like the really burnt out exile who just wants to put down that sword, but can't because there was always more stuff. And so the way we would work with that part is sort of thinking like, where's the wounded warrior going to get triggered? Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanksgiving's coming up actually when we're taping this, it's in a week. Um, which is actually coincidentally the day after my book comes out and that's not an accident. Um, for every, for every wounded warrior out there that has a hard Thanksgiving, you know, my book is coming out around then for a reason. But yeah, like I think working with that part really was identifying that holidays were really triggering for this part because that was when a lot of betrayals happened and a lot of things that my parents were doing that were, they were not standing up for me in the, you know, in the face of a lot of abuse within the family. You know, my mother was sort of one of the people that was very much like aggressive towards me, hard to get along with. And so this part just developed and was always armored up. And so what I realized though, was that in all my relationships at the time, wounded warrior was like kind of in the background right sort of like oh yeah do you want to fight okay like I will fight you know and I think that it was really hard to put the sword down and I think this is where parts work needs to go hand in hand with whatever someone's context is of their life right um and so in my book I talk about how I couldn't even think about putting the wounded warrior to rest until I had estranged myself. And so like, because as long as I was in this situation, this part was going to have to be out with the sword. And so, you know, this book begins with me estranging myself from both of my parents and sort of travels through the story of what it was like to lose everything and then find out that maybe Maybe none of that was really who I am and to figure out who I am in a deeper way. But that included, you know, this section of the book where wounded warrior is still like wanting to come out, but there's not the trigger is gone, you know? And I think that that is where therapy can really help because it really was like kind of a reckoning of like, there's no more wounded warrior Thanksgivings, Lauren. Like, <laughs> why is this part? still in this field you know um and that I think like th like the goal of parts work is to, not to get rid of any of your parts but to just help them alchemize and show up in a different way so you know wounded warrior is somewhere else now which I'm happy to report <laughs> not in that field anymore <laughs> oh my gosh well thank you so much for sharing that and I think uh, for, yeah, this specific time period, it is an end holiday season of 2023. Um, this is when a lot of us are interacting with our families or even facing the reality. Like I am not in contact with my family. I set that boundary for my own healing and there's grief in that. So there might be many wounded parts coming up around this time. So thank you for being so vulnerable and I'm sure that you're offering a a good allyship to maybe any listener who isn't in contact with maybe a family member who 
let's say, isn't doing their parts work, right? Um, and on the other hand, you bringing up the Aries moon thing and you having the wounded warrior as your parts, um, it's kind of proving a an astrological theory I, I have and what I work with with my own astrology clients all the time, like the moon and the moon's aspects being uh, our parts in a lot of ways and how our parts might react and also how our parts may heal. So it's it's cool to kind of have this pairing and that's why I'm excited to collab with you, you um, being so into astrology as a therapist. I think this is where the therapy world is really going. Like how can we integrate holistic and spiritual tools into some of this trauma work? Because like you said, that's how it's alchemized. Um, we can talk about something until the cows come home, but then it wasn't until you had your soul retrieval, you know, or whatever that, that is, you know, really the point of, okay, like I am, <laughs> I am rebirthed in some way. I mean, maybe it's not that simple, but I think you get what I'm saying. Oh yeah. And it's funny that, you know, we're talking astrology a little bit now because this is going to really blow your mind. Speaking of like combining parts work with this. So I have an Aries moon in the 10th house and I have Saturn and Pluto opposing that moon in Libra in the fourth house. <laughs> oh my God. So wait, I, let me just translate that as an yeah, astrologer. Yeah. This is what I would think about that. I would think Lauren is about to have one of the biggest career moments of her life, which is releasing the book. And also perhaps there is a part, maybe one of those exiled parts that's afraid of like betraying the family or maybe there's an exile part who's afraid of the backlash or afraid of really um outing your own journey um how, how am I doing with that interpretation <laughs> you're right you're amazing you're doing amazing it's exactly <laughs> right I mean there's like multiple exiles that are exactly in the place that you're describing and I've, I've had to do so much inner work in the two years that it took me to write this book to take care of them enough to bring this out in the first place, because yes, they were really scared about that. And still, I think they're going to be, but I think it's, you know, it's a process being, being able to say, I know these parts are really scared and I'm taking care of them. And what can I do to take care of them? And how can I make sure that that doesn't silence me, you know? And I oh. think, you know, the wounded warrior actually also feels like he's walking that Aries Libra axis of just sort of like sword out at every family gathering, trying so hard to like not be annihilated. <laughs> like at one moment, just like at a fever pitch with the sword and the next minute being like, I don't want to fight. I just want to get along with everyone. And it just, it feels like Saturn who has been, you know, in a very hard aspect my whole life. But like, it, I, I also think I think about that, even that like Libra Aries access in my chart as being sort of like, is it a surprise I'm estranged from my family? Probably not. <laughs> right, right. And yeah. you know, 
this kind of um it's kind of a sensitive i mean everything we're talking about is a bit of a, a sensitive uh subject but um i'm going back to something you said that the goal of ifs or parts work isn't to get rid of your part um it's actually acknowledging that your parts will always be there and always be at the table, but how can we further include them? And um, yet I think collectively or maybe on a subconscious level, I think we're very afraid of inner child work, whether that's on a subconscious level or conscious level. I'm not sure if everybody walking the planet is even aware of what inner child or IFS parts work is, but um, you know, it seems like there's a subconscious, like, ooh, don't touch that, which I assume is part of our exiles. Um, but I don't know, it's kind of a weird question, but I would love to know, like, why why are we afraid of our inner child at times? And how can we um yeah, how can we begin to like probe at that in a an accessible way? Is that the right question? I think it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so of course we would be afraid of that of going back into something that's that difficult to think about again, right? Because if you think about it, the idea of an exile is that they have already survived the trauma. And, you know, like it, like it's kind of the definition of trauma, right? Of sort of like being like something inescapable that we've already survived or that we're in the process of surviving actively, but that we want, like every part of our psyche wants to not be looking at that because we're built like that. We're animals, right? We're supposed to just be able to run away from the lion and shake it off. And I think that's the equivalent of what people are trying to do when an exile pops up is sort of like, you know, run away and shake it off and not think about it, you know, but the reality is that that exile will kind of keep popping up. And if we keep doing whack-a-mole to it, I'm like definitely mixing metaphors. So I apologize for that. But it feels like, you know, as long as we keep whacking those parts down, they are just going to get louder and it's actually going to get scarier and this is like the real IFS moment. Managers will continue to be built around the exile the more you whack it down. Oh my God, that makes so much sense. And uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, like thinking something I say to like my classes or my students or whatever, when I'm talking about inner child work, I'm like, have you guys ever been into like a nursing home? or like a, a retired living home and you're seeing like maybe an 80 or 90 year old person having like a complete temper tantrum akin to something that like a three or four year old would go through. Um, and I'm like, what do you think that is? And I think from an IFS perspective, it's someone again this isn't coming from a place of blame or belittling but it's someone who has gone their entire life whack-a-moling the exiled parts to the point where 
their managers are so strong, um, you know, that they can't, you know, like they can't see perspective of life from any other way except the managers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because every time we whack them all apart like that, which apparently is now just what we're saying for it. (laughs) I think people know what we're trying to say. Um, That builds the strength of the managers, right? Because the managers get triggered to go, oh, this is really bad. We definitely can't let anybody find this part, you know? And so, yeah, that is all we're going to see. And that's also, it's, you know, there, there will be, the likelihood of there being a firefighter or two that comes in then is stronger too, because it just becomes like the parts respond by saying, Oh, we can't get any closer to this. This is like touching a stove. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I think managers are attracted to other managers in a way. And this is my favorite way to think about the phenomenon of like Donald Trump being elected is, <laughs> I know hot take here, but uh, <laughs> like, uh, you know, there's this sense of um, the government being our parents and the people being the children, right? So the wounded children who are used to abusive parenting or um, not very mindful parenting, their managers are attracted to something in Donald Trump, who also has a very strong, well, narcissism, but uh, that's a different story. But maybe it's not maybe narcissism is very much related to managerial parts. But um, not to say every manager is a narcissist. But I'm thinking here, um, you know, this sense of um, like how our wounding gets stuck on other people's woundings and then we're attracted to the very manager in the other person that would keep us from looking at our exiles. Uh, I don't know if that made any sense, but I guess I've been kind of on a on a little bit of a journey these days thinking about political challenges through the lens of inner child work maybe because it gives me a sense of empathy in Mm -hmm. in a way it gives me a sense of like explanation for why why does everything like this happen um does that make any sense lauren (laughs) it makes total sense to me and i do think like whether we're speaking individually or collectively the root of all of this is actually pain you know it's the, one of the strongest motivators we have to either create managers to keep us away from more pain, right? Elect people that we think will keep us away from pain, be in situations that are driven by our pain that is really unprocessed, you know? And I think there are a lot of manager parts that I see on social media all the time that are talking clearly for the exiles, because I think when I said managers feel like a CEO, that's kind of what I mean. They're like at a press conference and they're the PR rep or they're like, no further questions. I'll take it from here, you know? And like, it sort of feels like that, like that energy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's something there that we're getting at. Should we write a book the <laughs> IFS, IFS journeys of the corrupt politicians? 
<laughs> I mean, I'm ready to write another one. I would write that book with you. <laughs> oh my God, totally. And I'm wondering too, um, Lauren, uh, maybe you could take us, you know, I told you this when we talked about your book a couple weeks ago, but um, one of my favorite parts of your book was when you participated in the mikvah mm-hmm. and how that was sort of a rebirth for you. And that felt really ultimately like it was the ultimate uh, acknowledgement and love. It, it was a ceremony for the exiled parts in a weird way and bringing all of those exiled parts back and reclaiming wholeness and in some way, but could you maybe tell us like, what is a mikvah? How did you get the idea to go through this uh, process? And what was that like for you through the IFS lens? Yes. Oh, I can't wait to answer this. Um, so yeah, a mikvah is a Jewish ritual ceremony of rebirth. Um, you can do it for all kinds of reasons. People do it before they get married. They can do it if they have just been through a really significant time, you know, which is kind of what I did. Um, I did it as a renaming ceremony um, because Lauren Hava Rose is my legal name now and it was not my birth name. Um, Lauren was my birth name, but Hava is the name that I chose in the mikvah to replace the middle name I was given at birth. Um, and so what it is, it's like very similar to a baptism. And I know there are also like just many different cultures with water as a rebirth ceremony. And the, you know, Judaism is another one where that's true for us. And so, um, what I did was I went to a synagogue that actually ended up being down the street from where I grew up, which like the, just the full circle element of this was unbelievable. Um, because there are only certain synagogues that will perform a mikvah. They're usually in Orthodox or conservative synagogues. Um, and I'm I'm a tattooed Jewish woman, so I can't go to an Orthodox one. <laughs> um, but the one that I found um, was really close to where I grew up and, and was named something else down the street. So I think it all was very interesting. Um, but I went to this synagogue and the ceremony is actually, it's just really beautiful. Um, you basically like take a full shower and you, it's like, it's gotta be the best shower of your entire life. Like, because a rabbi will literally inspect you after this happens to make sure you are like clean to go into this bath. Um, and I really did like shampoo my hair like three times and like really just try to get everything right. Because I had a list of instructions that I was given on how to do all of this. I had to brush my teeth. It was a whole thing. Um, And then like you come out of the shower and it's just you and a rabbi facing what ended up being at this one, a beautiful like sea green pool. And it was just like tiles from, you know, the ceiling to like, from the floor to the ceiling and it was just beautiful like wood slated doors all around and then just a giant pool with also like water that had to be to a certain regulation a certain temperature it's got to come from a certain place and it fills this pool and you go you know you wade yourself into this pool and stand in the center of it with your arms kind of directly out to the side 
say you you recite a few prayers in Hebrew and dunk yourself in a fetal position, which symbolizes coming through the canal again. And so like I went through this um, and I renamed myself Hava, which is the, the original Hebrew name for Eve. Um, and the name translates to the one who reveals the secrets of the underworld. And I feel like that's what I'm here to do. Oh, yeah, it, it makes it kind of like, yeah, it makes me a little bit emotional thinking about the the ritual and uh, itself being so beautiful. And also the I think the ultimate goal of IFS, again, like we said, it's not about getting rid of our inner child parts, but it's honoring our parts and also learning how to parent them in a better way. So I mean, how amazing is that metaphor of rebirthing yourself, renaming yourself and cutting the cord from your family's name, but also like rebirthing yourself as your own parent that you always needed. Like, it's just, it's really, really powerful. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting, like speaking of how did the mikvah kind of create a different IFS lens inside of me? I, I really came out of that pool different, like almost immediately. And I think that's again, where what we're saying, there's like a spiritual psychological bridge of this was a, like a spiritual event with psychological implications, you know? And I think I really did, it really did help a lot of exiles that I changed my name, that I chose this name and it felt like a homecoming. It felt like for so many parts that, you know, I have, I have a lot of teenage exile parts that are very much like truth teller, teenage girl at Claire's, you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, shopping with some friends being like, this is what I really think, you know? Um, and I love those parts there. I think I'm still exactly that person. And I feel like they really needed me to be Hava because that's the energy of that name is sort of like, I'm here to tell the truth. I understand I may be vilified for it, but oh, well, it's the truth. It's not my problem. <laughs> so I think it satisfied so many exiles when I did that. Oh yeah, totally. And it's kind of like, um, you know, I'm, I'm mixing my psychological terms, but like just the concept of exposure therapy, this sort of I'm exposing myself to a fear it, it, over and over again until it actually becomes healing. That's sort of like the process of contacting our exiled parts. And at first it is deeply terrifying. And then at the end of the day, it leads us to this beautiful mikvah ritual where we rebirth ourselves and we free ourselves from the name that ties us to our family structures that no longer serve us. And um, uh, part of me too, it's funny, part of me is uh, here in the interview right now because I'm like, should I uh, am I, there's an elephant in the room because of all the, um, you know, things that we've been hearing in the news about, um, like the free Palestine movement and in opposition with like a pro Israel kind of Zionist viewpoint. And 
um, if I can ask you, uh, if you feel comfortable, like what has it been like for your inner child lately being a Jew and having such a strong Jewish faith? Uh, tell us about what kind of parts work you've been doing lately. Yeah, thank you for naming that. Um, I think it's really important that we have this conversation and be bringing it up because, you know, it is absolutely atrocious what's going on. And I have been an anti-Zionist Jew for a very long time, um, which has been a point of contention in my family for many years. Um, and I do think that there are a lot of parts that are getting stirred up right now inside of me. I mean, some parts that are saying, I knew it, I knew it. This is what I've been saying since I went to Israel when I was 18 and I was really mad at various things. And I felt like I was the only one that was mad. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, I think there, some parts are feeling so much community right now and so much allyship from all the people both inside the anti-Zionist community and outside the Jewish community at large that are looking at this maybe for the first real time and saying, oh my God, you know, when this has really been a big schism from within the Jewish community for my entire life. Israel has always been just a very contentious topic in my family. I mean, it was like kind of taken off the table as soon as I started to say, I don't like this. I don't think it's right. Um, and it was very painful for my parents to hear me say that. And it was really painful for me that they couldn't hold space around what I was saying. And I actually think all of that plays out in my book, even though I'm not directly talking about Israel. This is ultimately a book about Jewish intergenerational trauma and, and what it looks like when we have been split up as a family, but we don't necessarily heal the epigenetics of that. And then our family is perpetuating more hurt, right? Um, and I think that that, when I look at what's going on, that's one of the things that I see. It's a really, it's really painful for me as a Jew to see this happening in Israel. And I think that I, I just really want people to be able to take the blindfold off and understand that a lot of this is motivated by pain and that doesn't make it right. You know, that I am completely for a free Palestine. And I, that's what I, I believe that that is acting within my Jewish values to say like a hundred percent. I think like no genocide for anyone, not in my name ever again. Like that's, that's where I stand. And that I think that I, you know, I'm living that truth right now in this moment as I publish this book. And the timing is really interesting <laughs> that all of that is happening. And I mean, I will just be honest that it, that there are definitely parts that are really scared, you know, like, really scared about the rise in anti-Semitism of people not understanding that this isn't really about Jews. This is about the Israeli government, you know? And I think that has that's dangerous for a lot of parts inside of me that are carrying a lot of epigenetic trauma. 
And so I'm really trying to hold those parts as I bring this book out. And I say, you know, we're going to be in a more public way with our Jewish identity, with what we think at a time when that feels scary to do, even though I know that my views are anti-Zionist, it's still scary. So I think that I just want to make sure that I'm saying all of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And thank you so much for naming that because I think um, like I'm not Jewish and there are, I did grow up in the Chicago burbs like you did, but in my specific Chicago burbia, um, really I had, I had very, very few um, Jewish people that I was around growing up to the point where I didn't really like uh, I wasn't around Jewish people until I, ironically, when I went to Malaysia with the Fulbright program, um, it, it's funny because Malaysia is a Muslim country. And um, that was the first time I was really surrounded by other American teachers who were Jewish. Like, I didn't even know the concept of a birthright until I was 20. Like, mm-hmm. that's how ignorant I am about Jewish culture growing up, just being in this sort of, um, I guess, Christianity whitewashed kind of suburbia that I that I grew up in so that being said um, I know other people may have that same um, experience just because the Jewish population is so small just worldwide and I really yeah thank you so much for sharing that perspective and I'm going to keep that in mind too as we you know I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, with the world, but kind of continuing on the sort of free Palestine movement, I think also holding that, um, having a lot of empathy for the Jewish people who are in the midst of healing very, very deep-seated ancestral generational trauma, how difficult it is at the same time with being on the right side of history and again that's my that's my own bias and you can feel free to disagree with me but that's how I feel you know yeah I mean and I just want to say that this is like the perfect time I think for a lot of folks that maybe didn't know that much about the the genocide that's been going on for a very long time by the way in Palestine um at like to start to understand and and to start to learn because I think it's ne- it's just never too late. And I think there's a reason, I even wonder if there's an astrological reason that it's boiling up now in lots of ways too. I don't think anything is an accident when it looks this global, even though I think for my life, I did wonder for many years, like, why isn't this a bigger issue? Why aren't more people talking about it? Why don't they see what's going on? Um, but I, I do think that I have had something surprising happen during this time because I am so anti-Zionist. And so that's not a surprise. And when this all broke, I knew I was going to be going to JVP protests in a shirt that says not in my name. And that's totally what I'm doing, you know, and I have actually felt more empathy for my family than I expected. And I think that that's also an important piece of this, right? Like that I do understand that they went as far as they could, both in 
in, in our family and ultimately what led to my estrangement, they did the best they could, but it wasn't safe for me to stay in the same way that I see their pain and I can imagine what they're feeling right now, you know, um, certainly without speaking for them, I feel like I do, I do understand, you know, where people are feeling that pain and it just can't be where we stop. And I think that's really the whole point of this conversation too, is like the exiles that are wanting us to just be in the pain, they haven't been alchemized though, right? Like, so if we just, if we just appease that, we haven't really moved anything forward. We haven't contributed to healing in ourselves and in the world. And so it's not far enough, but I understand it's where they are. Oh, it, it's such a good point because um, when we point fingers at each other from two sides and we say, no, my pain, no, my pain, no, it's my pain, my pain. Is that not an exiled part? <laughs> you know, like is yeah. you know, on a collective exactly. scale, we're really seeing the exiled part of the collective come out. And yeah, from an IFS perspective, I totally acknowledge why, you know, there's a lot of empathy and from me too, like I'm thinking about, uh, let's say like your parents' generation who this whole time was sort of told like, you know, Israel is this idealized place. That's what the propaganda tells us. And Israel becomes the idealized parent after a v- extremely deep seated trauma. Of course, the wounded inner child attaches to the um, the idealized parent. And going back to what we said earlier, why are people afraid of contacting their inner children? Well, their inner children tell them uncomfortable and identity-shaking truths <laughs> that not everybody is going to go through in this lifetime. You know, it just, it, it not everybody's going to do this deep of a self analysis and that's not me putting us on a pedestal it just is kind of something I've accepted (laughs) yeah I mean and I really think that I am in a privileged position in the family being a generation out from the holocaust you know even from my parents or my grandparents to be able to have seen you know, that what we did to each other is just as bad as what was being done to us or what we're doing in Israel is just as bad as what was done to us. It's not either or. And I think, I really do think that's a privilege that other generations don't have. And so I do like, you know, I do think that that is something that I want to make sure I'm saying too, you know, even though I, you know, that's, of course, it's not far enough, but it is just exiles at each other. I think that's what's going on on Instagram all day long. It's like exiles in the DMs, exiles on the comments. It's everybody's exiles. And I understand that because this is like absolutely one of those moments where no matter what your background is, this is tugging at an intergenerational trauma part and an epigenetic part because of there's so many different genocides. There's so many different ways that people have experienced something similar to this. 
And I really understand that. I really, I totally get that. Oh, yeah. I'm. It's such, such an important thing to say. Thank you so much for being open and available to, yeah, to talk about those things. And yeah, I'm so, I'm like so deeply grateful in this moment that we could have this conversation, not from like a, I'm right, God damn it, kind of perspective. Cause that's another part, you know, <laughs> that's another part at play when we're, we're like, I'm right. But when we approach things from empathy, it just, um, yeah, it, it means a lot to me and the podcast that I've created over the years. Um, and maybe Lauren, if it feels good to you, um, maybe you could give some tips for like just going back to IFS and inner child healing as a whole. I'm thinking about the listeners who maybe are new to this idea. Maybe they're not in necessarily intense IFS therapy. Maybe their therapist doesn't necessarily specialize in in this kind of thing, uh, and that's okay. But um, what is what are some I guess small steps, some accessible steps? to start getting maybe more in touch with the inner children, families inside of us, or maybe even getting in touch with just one part, because I think one part is better than not being in touch with anything, right? Yeah, I love that because actually something that I kept forgetting to say, but I'm going to say now because it's relevant, (laughs) is that I feel like, you know, exiles and inner children parts they want to be seen. They actually don't want to be where they are. That like, you know, that's, that's the, the managers are thinking it's better to keep them here and protect them. And they've been right about that for a long time. Right. So, you know, HT to the managers doing that work, you know, but I think that the exiles and the inner children, they actually like so many of them want out of exile, you know, and they want to be seen. And so to maybe even just start with that concept for everyone that like your inner children want you to see them. They, they want to hear from you. They want to know that you are open to talking to them and listening. That's the number one thing they actually want. You know, it's like any kid just wants to be seen by their parents. And I think when we're talking about inner child work you are the parent of these parts and I I think that can be hard for a lot of us who you know the p word might be a trigger like I know it was for me in a lot of ways I was like well I don't know how to parent because I really have that energy you know um and it's never too late to learn that but the reality is they actually really need you they don't need an external parent And it's actually never going to feel like enough. And so I think, you know, anything and like, you know, even if it's, if it feels sort of like daunting, right. For anyone listening, what I would say is like, get in touch with these inner children in a fun way and they will probably come out, right. Anything that's creative, anything that involves spontaneity or play, these are great things to do. Like it's going to be winter soon, throw some snowballs, you know, like, you know, like really just like play like a child and you will probably see some parts emerge that, that are very childlike, 
and, and are like, oh my God, we're actually, you know, baking some cookies and we're, or we're drawing, we're just sketching or we're drawing and it doesn't matter what we do, you know, like we're playing with a bunch of glitter, you know, like people's, whoever they live, if anyone lives with anyone and they're probably going to be mad, I'm like talking about glitter being everywhere now. But I think like anything that involves fun is also, I think, a safe thing to do outside of a space like therapy, because you're going to, you're going to get these parts that are ready to engage with you like that. And that I think might be a little less daunting. Oh, yeah, that's amazing advice. And yeah, it reminds me of uh, before I started doing IFS work, I used to say, I hate fun, (laughs) (laughs) which is very, very inner, inner child wounded thing to say. But uh, yeah, like approaching little kid things and Uh, I had someone yesterday tell me, oh yeah, as part of inner child healing, I just run into the piles of leaves because it's fall here in Chicago and there's a lot of leaves around and that's something we would do as a kid and uh, something that has been helpful to me too, just, um, you know, having a bit of a complicated relationship with food, just even from a neurodiverse perspective, but I think often when we have... um, you know, childhood trauma, sometimes it, it manifests in this sort of complicated relationship with eating, which is the fundamental nurturing thing that a parent does, right? Uh, so for me, sometimes if food is feeling uh, a bit touchy, I'll just ask my inner child, I'll be like, what do you want to eat? And I'll listen to that. That's been really helpful truly helpful like just to be like oh okay apples and peanut butter can do you know (laughs) that that's been a good one too for me I love that I love that and I think that is exactly right like to ask right away like what do you want right now what or, or to do something spontaneous like just jump in leaves without thinking about it because there's going to be managers and adult parts that are like why would we do that you know we're walking home from work or whatever you know like just let a different part take over you know and oh, i think totally. that that's the way to go yeah oh, oh, totally one more thing i'll add too is we live in such a culture of rest shame to the point where rest shame is a kind of a hot like a hot phrase like oh rest shame rest shame but uh Uh, Something that's been very healing for my inner child is to allow myself to take a nap when I need to take a nap, Uh, not fighting through the sleepiness and just taking a nap throughout the day. It's taken about three years to be able to do that, (laughs) but but I'm finally at a place where I'm like, okay, yeah, I, a part, I need a nap and an inner child part also needs a nap, so let's go take a nap. Uh, so something as simple as allowing yourself 30 minutes of shut eye, uh, is, is who's to say that's not healing, you know? And right. I love that. Cause I think taking a nap is, is like all these things we're talking about are things that kids do and are acceptable for kids to do. And even it's like, anyone that wants to engage with their inner child in terms of a nap can, 
put a blanket, like wrap themselves in a blanket, just get a little bit closer, you know, scooch yourself into a fetal position or like maybe just sort of like hold on to a stuffed animal or get one, you know, like these are all things too, to actually, you know, be able to invoke those parts. Because I think that when they see us allow them to come forward, it becomes safer for them to tell us in other ways that they need us. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, well, Lauren, this was so, yeah, so, so nourishing. Um, and of course, I'll have all of your uh, links in the show notes, but do you want to give a little shout out to when the heart word is coming out? We know it's uh, very soon and where the listeners can go to check it out or potentially buy or download it. Give us all the details. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much. This has been so nourishing for me too. And it's just, I just love all the different you know, topics that we were able to cover. And I really hope that, you know, we said a lot of things that nourished a lot of people's parts as well. I know I feel like my, a lot of my parts are feeling just really grateful to you and to this, you know, to the listeners for being here. So, um, so the heart word, which is my debut memoir, um, is coming to Amazon books on November 22nd, 2023. There will be an ebook and a paperback edition available right away. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, the, you can also follow me on Instagram at Lauren Hava Rose. Uh, my middle name is spelled C-H-A-V-A. Um, and that's where I will also be blasting the links to this book when, you know, as soon as it's live. Um, and I also have a website, which is laurenhavarose.com. Um, and a newsletter, which is called Heart Words, uh, which people can sign up for to receive monthly doses of, you know, short prose or poetry from my heart to yours. So, oh, amazing. And like I said, Lauren and I met each other through Witch Church. So I always love having a Witch Church uh parishioner on the, on the podcast itself. And you might even run into Lauren at Witch Church Live, which most of you, I think, know by now it's 10 a.m. Central on Sundays, or you can always catch the recording uh, on my podcast like a day or two after when I get around to publishing it. Uh, but yeah, you're bound to run into Lauren at Witch Church Live at some point. <laughs> Yes, and I welcome that because I love Witch Church and it really is the highlight of my Sunday. Oh, that's that's so sweet. Uh, well, you are so awesome. And I hope that we can also do a podcast in the future. Maybe once your your book fame di dies down in the, uh, you know, maybe in the spring of 2024, we could do like a relationship and inner child healing uh, podcast or something like that. Uh, for some reason, my intuition's telling me we need to do part two about relationships. So <laughs> I would love that, especially because something that I didn't mention is that I'm a relational therapist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> So yeah, absolutely. I think there could be a part two, especially if people maybe have questions that they want us to answer or, you know, ways that we can keep this going. Oh yeah. I would love that. Yeah. So yeah. Any listeners, if you want to shoot me a DM or an email with any questions that arose from this, uh, 
podcast, we'll collect them and save them for part two. Okay. Thanks, Lauren. Okay. We'll see you next time. Bye.